And thank God once again, and this is Pastor Adams, the president and founder of Truth Matters Ministries. We're so excited and delighted once again to be able to come and share with you on this Truth Matters podcast the very important teaching of effective evangelism. In our last two episodes, we've talked about very important concepts and just what's happening within the world and how to be more effective in our evangelism. And today we're going to be continuing our next episode. Before we do that, as our custom is, we like to pause and pray. Father, we thank you once again for a day we haven't seen before. And Lord, as we begin to really think about the seriousness of the hour, we're living in a time of COVID-19 from every corner of the earth. So many people have perished. I believe in this United States alone, we have nearly a million cases of documented infections of COVID-19. Because of our lack of testing, there are probably millions more that are affected, but yet we have not documented it. And we have over 55,000 American lives that have been lost because of COVID-19. And Lord, it's just not the loss of physical life that's most important. But the most important thing today, God, is what about their eternity? Now, Father, we pray today that you would bless our listening audience to really embrace the urgency of the hour. Every day in this world, 150,000 people are ushered into eternity. There are only two options. One, they're going to heaven or they're going to hell. I know that's not popular today, God, but one thing we know is that you said in your word that every man who does not come to Jesus Christ, you said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to God except through you. And you are the only propitiation. You are the only remedy to man's sin. Let our listeners today, let them be equipped. Let them, Lord God, have all the provisions that they need to be effective as we reach a lost and dying world. And it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. And as we get into our teaching on effective evangelism, I'm just mindful of the words of Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal said that truth is so obscure in these days, and he said that falsehoods are so well established. He said that unless we love the truth, he says that we can't even know it. Also true are the words of Patrick Fitzgerald, who was the lead prosecutor in the famous Scooter Libby trial. He said that truth is the engine of our justice system, and without truth, he says we don't have anything. I'm mindful of the words that were spoken by Adam Schiff as he was giving his final comments in the Donald Trump impeachment hearings. He said that right matters and that truth matters. And without truth, we're lost. No wonder we put left hands on Bibles and right hands in the air and in court proceedings, we affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why? Because truth matters. And as we are embarking upon this episode of Effective Evangelism, our desire is to reach a dead 
and lost world. And as we're reaching a, a, a dead and lost world, I want to just share some very important information. There are so many of us today who are listening that have various reasons why they don't evangelize. I asked a question one time. I said, why is it that the basketball player Shaquille O'Neal, did he like going to the free throw line or did he maybe have anxiety about going to the free throw line? In fact, because he was not so good at shooting free throws, they had a term that was called hack-a-shack, meaning if the game is close, foul Shaquille O'Neal because he'll probably miss the free throw. And I began to wonder, I said, I wonder why he's not good at free throw shooting. It's probably two components that are at play here. Normally, if a person is not good at doing something, they probably don't do it a lot. And if you don't do it a lot, then you'll never really get good at it. So we have both of those dynamics at play simultaneously. And when we start thinking about us as Christians, for those of you who don't do a lot of evangelism, the question is, why don't you? Maybe we don't do it because we don't feel qualified. Maybe we have fear because we might say something wrong. But Truth Matters Ministries desire to empower and equip just ordinary Christian people to master the principles of how to witness just like Jesus did. Instead of having what we've done too many times of having intellectual sparring sessions with other people, we desire to demonstrate how to ask a series of questions that bypass the intellect of the sinner and place the argument and go straight to the conscience and the soul where the knowledge of right and wrong are located. See, once a person sees that they violated God's law, then we will show them how to present God's solution to our violations or our sins and give them the gospel in a biblical way. This is very simple and easy way to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about effective evangelism. It is the task and the duty of Christians because we are a light that is supposed to shine before men that they can see the good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven according to Matthew 5 and 16. Acts 13 and 47 says this, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you might bring salvation to the very ends of the world. So therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Psalms 105 and 1 says, Give praise to Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. If we're going to be effective in our evangelism, we have to follow and execute these admonitions from the word of God. And then 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your heart and be ready always, be prepared to give an answer 
for the reason that you have in Christ Jesus. But don't do it boastfully. Don't do it in a condescending manner. But he says do it with gentleness, with humbleness, and then with reverence and respect. Acts 1 and 8 says this. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And see, the Spirit doesn't come into our life just for us to have chill bumps and to have the hair raised on our skin or us to feel dynamic. But what does it come for? He says, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Are we witnessing? Are we sharing our faith? Are we operating as a light? Are we going to the ends of the earth? Are we baptizing people? In the name of Jesus Christ, teaching them to observe all things that he's commanded. This is what the Apostle Paul said in Acts 20 and 24. He said, however, I count and consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim in life is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. What is that task? The task of testifying to the good news of the gospel of God's grace. And then finally in Mark 16 and 15, Jesus said unto them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now, what is an evangelist? What is evangelism? First, we have to understand what is an evangelist. What's an evangel? It's a person that is sharing the good news and bringing good news. And what good news is he bringing? He's bringing doctrine. What doctrine? He, as a teacher, is bringing information and correct teaching about how to know God in a spiritual perspective. It's so important that we as people of God know how to do that. Now, when last week we talked about God in Luke 10 and 25, that God, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We had shared about any time a person was proud or they began to make excuse or they began to justify their current spiritual state and they began to try to justify themselves and uh, bolster or to embellish their their spiritual resume before God, he would resist them and he would give them the law of God. And when he gave them the law of God and as a mirror, it showed them who they were, then he would give them grace or the gospel because they humbled themselves. Now, when we see grace being given to the humble, we have to look at the incident of Nicodemus in John 3. In, in, in John 3, Nicodemus was a leader of the Jews. He was a teacher in Israel. Therefore, he was thoroughly versed in God's law. He was humble of heart because he came to Jesus and he acknowledged that Jesus was indeed the son of God, a leader in Israel. We know that you've come from God is what Nicodemus said. Why? Because no man can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus gave this sincere seeker of truth who had humbled his heart and had a knowledge of sin by the law, he gave him the good news of a fine being paid for him. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And this was not foolishness to Nicodemus, but he saw it as the power of God to salvation. Similarly, we think about the case of Nathaniel in John 1, verse 43 through 51. Nathaniel was an Israelite. He was brought up under the law indeed. Not just in word in whom there was no guile, there was no deceit in his heart. Obviously, the law had became his schoolmaster to bring this godly Jew to Christ. Just like in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, they were devout Jews. They were godly Jews who therefore ate and drank and they slept God's law. They knew all about the law of Moses. Here's what Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, said. He says they were gathered together on the day of Pentecost because it was a day to celebrate the giving of God's law on Mount Sinai. So when Peter stood up to preach to these godly Jews, he didn't preach wrath. No. The law works wrath. They already knew that. He didn't preach righteousness or judgment. He just told them the good news that their fine had been paid by Jesus Christ. And they were pricked in their hearts and cried, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The law was a schoolmaster to bring them to Jesus Christ, that they might be justified through faith in his blood. As the hymn writer said, By God's word, at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law that I had spurned to my guilty soul, employing turn to Calvary. And we as people of God have got to learn how to really use the law lawfully. If we're going to be effective in our evangelism, we have to use the law lawfully. What did God say in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1 and 8? He says, but we know that the law is good if it's used lawfully for the purpose for which it was designed. God's law is good if it's used lawfully for the purpose for which it was designed. Well, what was the law designed for? The following verse tells us, the law was not made for righteous men, but it was made for sinners. It was made for sinners. So if I know a person is not born again, I'm going to give them the law. There's no sense in me talking about God loves you, Jesus loves you, and, and, and all the wonderful things about Jesus Christ because they're not pricked in their heart. If It even lists, you know, sinners. If I thought of, talked about a homosexual or a fornicator, if you want to bring a homosexual to Christ, don't get in an argument and start talking about how perverse his lifestyle is. He's, got, he's ready to put his boxing gloves on and fight with you. You're two men in two different corners. You're two people in two different corners. Instead of you putting your arm around him through the law, you become an adversary immediately, and he's not going to really receive what you said. But give him the Ten Commandments. The law was made for homosexuals. Show him that he is damned despite his perversion. If you want to bring a Jew to Christ, lay the weight of the law upon the Jewish person. Let it prepare his heart for grace as happened in the day of Pentecost. If you want to bring a Muslim to Christ, give him the law of Moses. Muslims accept the actual law of uh, Moses as a prophet. Give him the law of Moses and strip them of their self-righteousness and bring them to the foot of the bloodstained cross. Ray Comfort speaks of a Muslim reading his book that was called Hell's Best Kept Secret. 
And when he read the book, he got saved purely through reading that book. Why? Because the law of the Lord is perfect and it converts the soul. Think of the woman who was caught in adultery in John 8 and 1. She was in violation of the seventh commandment. The law called for her blood, according to Leviticus 20 and 10. She found herself between a rock and a hard place. She had no avenue but to fling herself at the foot of the Son of God and ask for mercy. That is the function of God's law. Paul spoke of being shut up under the law in Galatians 3 and 23. It condemns. You say, you can't go out and condemn sinners, but understand something, people of God in my listening audience. Sinners are already condemned. According to John 3 and 18, he that believes is not condemned already, but the law does it to show himself in his true state. And I think it's so important that we really, really do this. Listen to this. Let's do this example. Let's say your table in your living room needed dusting. So you go and you dust it. The dust appears to be gone. Then you just go back and you open the curtains in your living room and you let the early morning sunlight in. But what do you see on the table? Dust. What do you see in the air? More dust. Did the light create the dust? No, the light didn't create the dust. The light merely exposed the dust. And when you and I take time to draw back the curtains of the Holy of Holies and let the light of God's law shine upon the sinner's heart. All that happens is he sees himself in truth. The commandment is a law, is a lamp and the law of light according to Proverbs 6 and 23. That's why Paul said by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's why he said by the commandment sin became exceedingly sinful. In other words, the law showed him his sins in true light. And what we want to do for a few minutes is I want you to give ear uh, Mr. Ray Comfort, who is the founder of the Way of the Master's Ministry. He had actually went out on the street and he met with a gentleman and he actually showed how using the law and letting the law be a mirror and show a person's their sin will cause them to come to repentance and cry out before God. I want you to give listen to this. So, when you got up this morning, did you look in the mirror? Yes, I did. And why did you do that? Because uh, I wouldn't see my face. Yeah, you want to see, you want to clean up before you go public. You know, puffy eyes, messy hair, whatever. And the mirror reveals what you are in truth. It doesn't lie to you. And then it sends you to the water to wash. So, I'm going to turn the mirror on you so you can see yourself in truth. This will put your Christian walk on steroids. So, let's, let's do that. This is the, the moral law of the Ten Commandments. How many lies do you think you've told in your life? Uh, uh, well, I'm not a big liar, but sorts, sorts fibs, I guess. I don't know. I can't really name, you know, little ones here and there. Just little lies? Yeah. What do you call someone who tells lies? Uh, an untruthful person. Oh, a liar. A liar. So what are you? I am a truthful person. Yeah, but if you tell lies, what are you called? <laughs> Rhymes with fire and begins with L. You know, Clarence, it's really hard to judge ourselves. Liar. Yeah, that's it. Now, if I told lies, you'd have no trouble saying you're a liar. Now, have you ever stolen something in your whole life, even if it's small? Uh, yeah. What do you call someone who steals things? A, a thief. So what are you? A thief. No, a lying thief. A lying thief. <laughs> 
Do you still think you're a good person? Yes, I am. Now you think a lying thief is a good person? Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. Have you ever used God? Bring it on down, Ray. Yeah, Ray, the lying thief, it, it, it puts you down on number five out of ten. Yeah. yeah. So, have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes, I have. It's using God's name as a cuss word when the Bible says his name is holy. Would you use your mother's name as a cuss word? No. Because you'd, dis you'd dishonor her, you'd insult her, you'd even anger her. You know, and we anger God when we use his name as a cuss word to express disgust. It's called blasphemy and punishable by death in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Yes. Have you had sex before marriage? Yes. So, Clarence, here's a quick summation. I'm not judging you. But you're, yeah, I'm breaking it down. You've just told me you're a lying, thieving, fornicating, blasphemous, adulterer at heart, and you have to face God on Judgment Day. So, if he judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day... Do you think it'd be innocent or guilty? Guilty. Heaven or hell? I don't want to say that way. Well, I will because I love you. I care about you. And if I see you I'm in... Going to hell. Yeah. Say that again. I'm going to hell. Now, does that concern you? Yeah, very much so. Now, if you were on a thousand-foot cliff with your toes over the edge, we're talking a thousand-foot cliff, would that be scary for you? Yes, surely it would. Would the feeling of fear be a horrible feeling? Surely it would. Is the feeling of fear a good thing or a bad thing? Very bad. No, it's actually very good. You know why? Because it's saying step back from the thousand foot cliff. Don't, don't die. Step back, step back. So that fear is not your enemy, it's your friend. It's making you step back from that cliff. And what I've tried to do is put you on the edge of eternity and let the fear of God fill your heart. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Scriptures say it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus said, fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards do no more, but fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. That's a strange thing for him to say. I don't know if you heard what he just said, but let me say again, he said, fear not him who has power to kill your body. Imagine lying in bed at night, hear the door creak open in the darkness, and you see a guy coming at you with a mask on, with a glittering knife, he pulls the knife back to stab it in your chest. Man, you, your heart would be in your mouth. You'd be so horrified. But Jesus said, don't be afraid of him compared to the fear you should have for God. And so the Bible says, through the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. And so that fear that I'm trying to put in your heart by God's grace is your friend, not your enemy, because it'll make you let go of those beloved sins. We love to fornicate. We love to look at pornography. We even love to lie and steal because, well, it gives us a bit of a buzz. When I was a kid, I used to steal uh, apples from the from the neighbors. It was more exciting than getting them off the kitchen table. He used to take lead. <laughs> because we've got a sinful heart that loves darkness more than light. So, Clarence, tell me, what did God do for guilty sinners so he wouldn't have to go to hell? He gave his only begotten son that we should have eternal life. Yeah. And the Bible says the Ten Commandments are called the moral John law. John 3.16. Yeah. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. You know, we tend to trivialize sin and say, well, it's just white lies and fibs. But the Bible says lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. We say we just take little things like candy from a store. But the Bible says thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the way to see how serious God is about sin is to look at the punishment he's given. Death. The wages of sin is death. 
death is evidence that God is deadly serious about sin. So the fear of God should fill our hearts. Death should make us think, man, I don't want to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a terrifying thing. So Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our sins, took our punishment. If you're in court, Clarence, and someone pays you fine, the judge can legally let you go. He can say, Clarence, stack of speeding fines here. This is very serious, but someone's paid him. You're free to go. And he can do that, which is just and right and legal. Well, God can legally dismiss our case, forgive our sins, commute our death sentence, actually take the death sentence off us because Jesus paid the fine on our behalf, rose again on the third day and defeated death. And now what you have to do, and this is probably what was missing before, is repent of your sins. Now, let me explain why I think there's probably a problem is if I said to you, Clarence, I've got some great news for you. Someone just paid a speeding fine on your behalf. If you didn't believe you broke the law, that good news of me paying the fine for you or having the fine paid for you wouldn't be good news. It'd be insulting. I'd say, what are you talking about? I don't have a speeding fine. But if you realize you've broken the law, that you went like 60 miles an hour through an area set aside for a blind children's convention, 10 miles an hour, you did a terrible thing. And then I say, oh, someone's paid the paid that fine for you, then that good news becomes good news indeed. So the good news depends on how serious you see your transgression is. And if you see sin as being deadly serious, lying, stealing, using God's name as a cuss word, lusting after women, committing adultery in your heart, then the good news of the cross will make sense to you. You'll find a place of genuine sorrow. And then the Bible says, godly sorrow works repentance. You'll be able to truly repent, let go of those sins because of the godly sorrow. That's the first thing. The second thing you must do to be saved is trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. You don't just believe in a parachute, you put your faith into it. And when you have your faith in a parachute, you lose your fear. If you're going to jump without a parachute 10,000 feet, you'd be terrified. Someone gives you a parachute and you trust the parachute, you say, ah, I'm safe. I'm going to land at five miles an hour on my feet instead of 120, 120 miles an hour on my face. And so when I face death, and it can come at any time, I've got no fear according to the faith I have in Christ. I've put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I can look at death in the face. I can look at judgment day and have boldness because I'm trusting in the Savior. I'm trusting in His righteousness. Does this make sense? Yes, it does. So, Clarence, if you were to die today and God gave you justice, despite your intellectual belief and, and knowing so much truth, you'd end up in hell. There are two things you must do to be saved. You must repent and trust alone in Jesus. When are you going to do that? I've already done it. Yeah, but remember this, the fruit wasn't there. So I think you should do it again. The Bible says... God, I ask you right now to come in my heart and renew my mind. I ask that you to work on, work on my dailies, my thoughts, my endeavors, and everything that's in front of me that let your will be done and not mine. And all these things I ask in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. I pray for Clarence that today... He'll see sin in a, a, a different light and find a place of godly sorrow and bring forth fruit worthy of repentance and know that he's passed from death to life and that his walk will be one of holiness and glorifying you and you'd raise him up as a burning and a shining light.